Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. We're going to take a little break in the uh, series Made for Mission, but uh, we never get off mission, really, in these messages, and so this has everything to do with it. In fact, some of the questions that uh, I want to propose to you today from the book of Ecclesiastes and some of the answers that are needed have everything to do with why we're doing what we're doing and why we need to share what we're doing and who we are with other people. Have you ever said or heard someone say, when I get to heaven, I really want to ask God this, what's yours? It might be something pretty deep, but probably, and I picture it, maybe it's going to be a little bit like this, right? Like the uh, press conference, uh, Lord, Lord, we have a lot of questions, right? It, it might be like, my first question is going to be, Lord, let's just clear this up. Why did you make mosquitoes? All right, why flies, you know, why ticks? I need the answers to those. I've been wondering for a long time, but uh, there's a lot of deeper questions for sure that are probably more consequential to us to know the answers to than those. Why am I here? Do I really matter? Does it really matter how I live my life? Does my stuff really matter? Does God really care about me? Why am I so restless? What matters really when it comes to the end? If I was in my last day on earth, what really matters? This stuff we've got to know. Sometimes we don't really want to know how things end. If I, uh, for example, had gone down to the Marcus Theater on Thursday night when Star Wars was opening, and I knew how that was going to end, and I stood there with a line of people going out the door dressed in costumes, and I said, the last Jedi ends like this. Luke Skywalker is going to pow. You know somebody probably just elbow dropped me right there on the spot. And I was like, we're not going to let you tell us how this thing's going to end. We really like to uh, guess how things are going to end when we're the audience. It's really easy when you're the audience to uh, go along for the ride and <clears throat> enjoy the story and see how things unfold and, and predict how the next episode's going to go. But when, but when you're the, the actor in the riveting, dramatic story of life, it's really not always so uh, pleasant to think, I don't know how this is going to end. It's not really that cool to not know what's going to happen tomorrow and try to guess. Uh, we'd all like to know a little bit about how things are going to shake out in the end, wouldn't we? But that we do have. If you believe that the Bible is God's revelation to man about why we're here, who you are, whether you matter or not, what He has to say to you about how you live your life, 
how things are going to shake out in the end? If that's true, then you've got the answers to the questions that are, that are going to influence your life and how you live it right here in this book. The neat thing is there are some places in the Bible where there's really just a microcosm of those answers being addressed and, and concluded, and the book of Ecclesiastes is one of those places. And later, Jesus picks up on some of those things in his life here in complete harmony with the book of Ecclesiastes. Not only does he embody them, but he reiterates the truths of this book. But what's really neat about this book and what is unlike the life of Jesus is that there is is the author who wrote the book who actually tests the things that God is saying to see whether they're true. And he's in a perfect position to do it. You see, King Solomon of Israel was pleasing to God when he became king as a young man. And God said, ask, what shall I give you? And he thought about it and he asked for wisdom. Or who can lead these great people of yours? And that pleased God even more. And God said, not only will I give you wisdom, but because of that character of yours, I'll also bless you with riches. And I'll also enlarge your borders. And he gave him a lot of other things that probably most men would have asked for first. So Solomon was endowed, as it says in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29, with wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart. That's interesting. If you wonder what that means, he was, he was endowed with largeness of heart. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. Because this guy's heart was, was, was full of passion. And, and he had a big heart, but he had a lot of things that he wanted to, to toss around inside that heart as well as in his head and see if it fulfilled his heart. He enlarged his heart. He had a, he had a big heart, but, but he, he sought out to see for himself with all this wisdom if, if what, really was, what really was true about this world? What's the, what's the truth about the way we see the world? And what's foolishness? I want to know what's folly as well. I want to know the difference. And he said, and go ahead and open to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's right after Proverbs, right near the middle of your Bibles. And he said in uh, chapter 1, I set my heart to find out. I I said, heart, we're going to find out. And he went off and he began to pursue everything and anything in life, leaving no stone unturned, to try to find out if God's words about this life and of the future were true, or if perhaps there were other truths, maybe like what Adam and Eve might have thought in the garden when they, were, when they were deceived by thinking, well, maybe God's not telling us everything. See, Solomon had some desires in his heart he wanted to pursue, but they conflicted with some things that God had said. And so he went after to find out. And Solomon was uh, the most uniquely qualified candidate in history to do this. First of all, we learned that he had his own commercial fleet of ships to bring him the best products from everywhere in the world. The best 
weaponry, the finest clothing, the best of the jewels, including the uh, precious metals, gold and silver, coming from certain lands where it was the finest. He had them bringing all these things. They were even bringing him animals from all over the world. I mean, he had his own zoo. Apes and monkeys, it says, were brought to him. Picture that, would you? Getting off the ship. The guy had his own zoo. He had, he had at his disposal the ability to go into all the world and, and find out what is the best that this life has to offer. He had the wealth to do it. He had the power to do it. He became a great judge. He became a great military power. He became a great scientist, and he became a great orator in this wisdom that God had given him. In fact, uh, one such person, the Queen of Sheba, came all the way from, we believe, to be the the east or southeast regions of Africa, all the way up to, to see if it was really true how wise and how great this guy was. And it says that when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. Now that's interesting, see. Solomon was attributing his wisdom to God. And when she had heard that this was a man who had the wisdom of God, she went, it says, and came to Jerusalem with a great retinue with camels and spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she uh, spoke with him, listen to this, about all that was in her heart. So Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. Now, she may have asked him about mosquitoes. (laughs) She may have asked him about flies and ticks and whatever other creatures are down in the regions of Africa that she didn't like and wondered about. But I doubt that. I I think because of the name of the Lord being associated with the wisdom of God and she had all these things bound up in her heart that she was not unlike us. And that what I really, really want to know is, what's the meaning of life? Like, who am I in relation to a creator? Does the way that I rule my nation have any effect on my eternal destiny? Is there an eternity? What's coming after this? Do you know? Have you been told? I imagine that those are the kinds of questions that were in her heart if she's going to make a trip all the way up to Palestine, don't you? And it says there was nothing he couldn't answer. Now, that's interesting to me. Solomon was uniquely qualified to answer the questions of life in this book, not only because God talked with him directly and he with God, but because he had the wherewithal to test these things directly. God didn't take away his free will. He used his free will to test God and to test this world and to see what is really the truth. And then he drew some conclusions. And his conclusions are really what we want. I want to know, not just from a person that I believe to have a religious bias, what they think. And I want to know, not just from a person who has no belief in the supernatural, but has experienced all the fullness of life, what they think, I would really like to know from somebody who's talked to God and put these things to the test with with being the most powerful man in the world. Now, that's the person I'd like to ask. What did you come to? What was your conclusion about life? And he has one. 
But first, I want to take you on a little bit of the journey, would you? Would you look at chapter 2 and the first three verses? Of course, the first place he wants to start looking is in pleasure. You know, the things that make us feel good. I want to I experience some of the finest of this, the things that this life has to offer. And look what some of these things are. He said, I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with myrrh. That's the idea. We're going to party. We're going to have an environment here where I'm going to seek pleasure to the fullest. Therefore, he says, enjoy pleasure. But surely this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it's madness. And of myrrh, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. You see, there's the key phrase of the book, under heaven, under the sun. That's the key phrase of that book. You see it come up over and over and over again. And he says, under the sun now, with, not, with no spiritual, divine eternal perspective, I just want to see, according to the way things go on this globe, what's real, what really matters. I'm going to search for this, and I'm going to start with pleasure. And boy, did he. All of these things really fall under the umbrella of pleasure, which is interesting to me because now he talks about productivity. He talks about something he's really good at. Solomon's a great builder. He's a great constructionist, Clay. Solomon had labor forces building not only cities, but palaces for every season and every beautiful place in the region of Palestine. Some on the plains, some in the great city of Jerusalem, some up in the forests of Ephraim. And he says, look at this, uh, down in, uh, for example, uh, verse 4. I made my works great. I built myself houses. I planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which the water, uh, uh, from which to water the growing trees of the grove. Now he had beautiful places to live. He was a he was a home builder, and he was a homemaker. He wanted to be able to wake up in the morning and look out and see the sunrise go out and pick some fresh fruit, have some nice breakfast on his place, have some peace and quiet, walk through the gardens and contemplate. Doesn't that sound good? I mean, I like the sounds of that. And I want you to notice that most of these things here, there's nothing inherently wrong with them at all. He's just seeking to see if, is this really where the meaning of life is? Will this satisfy my soul? That, that's what I want to know. God says I need him. I want to know, well, will these things satisfy my soul? Because I can make the best of them, and I can acquire the best of it, and I'll find my answers. He said, I acquired male and female servants, and had servants born in my own house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. You see, he's testing prosperity now. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. Can you imagine going into his home or into his treasure house and looking through at the antiques and looking through at the gifts from people from all over the world? Wouldn't that be fascinating? He said, I had it. I had my own museum. And it was stuff people gave to me or stuff that I bought from all over the world. And he says, 
I had male and female singers. There was pomp. I had the pomp here. Uh, the delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kind. He had his own Broadway shows that he could draw upon. You know, being the king was kind of tough today. What do the singers and musicians have for me tonight? I really need to just relax and have a show, get my mind off of things. He could do that. And he says, so I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. You see, I became the greatest. Sounds like Muhammad Ali in that chapter, doesn't he? I'm the greatest. I am greater than everyone before me in wisdom and in possessions and in capability. I had it all. There's no one. God told him there will be no one like you after you either. He says in verse 10, I didn't withhold my heart from any pleasure. But when you come down to verse 14, at the end of that verse, he says, yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all, to the wise and to the foolish. He said, I said in my heart, in verse 15, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. So why am I really the more wise? This is vanity. He said in verse 16, all that now is will be forgotten in days to come. You know, I know a little bit about my great-grandfather. It's kind of a fascinating story. He came over with, uh, with his family from Wales, and he was born here. Two siblings were born in Wales. Two were born in uh, Wadsworth, Ohio. And that's where the Thomases uh, started over here. And his farm is still up there. And a few years ago, we had a reunion on that farm. And I had driven past it, I guess, and my dad said, hey, that's where. But I actually got to spend a little time on that farm. But my children, now, I don't know if they'll remember nearly what I might have remembered from my dad telling me about Lewis Thomas and all the things. I hate to say it, but it'll probably be forgotten someday, except for what is written in a family Bible that weighs about 22 pounds, about him coming over here, and a few articles in the newspaper about him selling his livestock. I, he was sounded like a prosperous person, you know? Somebody that was living life to the full there, had bought his own piece of property and piece of the American pot, and all but forgotten in name and a few facts. And I suppose in a few generations, if we're not careful, it could be. You see, so Solomon's saying, even all this is going to be forgotten in a few generations, except for the fact that he's going to have it written down in a book. Like Job. Oh, I wish all I was going through would be written in a book. Well, Job, guess what? God's going to have you write it down when it's all over here. And that's what he did with Solomon. Pleasure, though, church, guests, pleasure wasn't where he was going to find fulfillment. So what else do we have? Well, let's start to just skim through the book here briefly. Chapter 3, he concludes that this is all a cruel test from God so that we'll see that we're no better off than the animals. He puts eternal awareness in our hearts, verse 11, and reveals himself to us, but in the end we seem to have no real advantage, verse 18. This is a perspective that is common today. This is the unbeliever or the naturalist's perspective. You know, the whole idea of God's really just rather cruel, because if you look around, we all die. We all go back to the dust. We don't have an advantage over the animals, 
You know, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the animals goes downward? Do you really, have you really ever seen that? So Jesus comes along later and says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Have you really ever seen somebody raised from the dead? Well, that, I got news for you. That's the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nobody had until him. But he's saying here, this just really can seem like a cruel joke. In chapter 4, I searched for, through companionship from others. Two's better than one, and a threefold cord is not easily broken. But he says, pity the fool who works all his life and then doesn't ask the question. Verse 8 of chapter 4, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? I mean, I'm working really hard here, and I sacrifice of really what I want to do and just have pleasure all day. I got to put in some work, but who am I doing it for? He says, you know, whether you're alone, it's pitiful, or you have a companion, you still, however, at the end, won't find what you're looking for, not even in another human being, not in a family member, not in a spouse. So he searches on. And Lord knows, and so do you probably, that he married a thousand women to see if he could find one that fulfilled his desires. A thousand didn't do it. It had nothing to do with women. It had to do with him being ignorant in his searching of where he might find true fulfillment. Chapter 5 is a failed attempt. This is interesting. A failed attempt to find fulfillment through religion. Meritorious religion. He says, walk prudently when you go into the house of the Lord and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools for they did not know that they do evil. So even religion, if practiced meritoriously, which most of the religions of the world are, in order for me to please my God, I must do this. And Christianity is that one religion where God gives us what we cannot attain for ourselves, where He does for us what we cannot do, and He gives us by grace what we cannot earn. And He says, I accept you for who you are, where you're at right now, and I'll walk with you to bring you to be the person that I want you to be. But here he says, when you come into the house of God to worship, the fools are the ones that come in thinking that if I can just give something, God will give me something in return maybe. And if I can do really, really well, maybe religion will make me feel better about the future. Nope. It's not there. Chapters 6 and 7 speak of the excellence of a good name and the value of wisdom. But then he comes to the end of the chapter and realizes that all our goodness does not free us from the two facts given in verse 20 of chapter 7 and verse 29. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. So no matter how good you are, no matter how great a name you have and what your reputation is like, there's no one that doesn't have sin in their life. Oh boy, what are we going to do about that? Then he comes down to the last verse and says, Truly this only have I found, that God made man up, upright, but they've sought out many schemes. We're in trouble. So my good name isn't going to resolve my emptiness in my searching for fulfillment. Chapter 8 then. What do we got in chapter 8? Wisdom 
reveals truths and knowledge about God and the eternal, but even wisdom itself, he concludes, cannot save. So in all my wisdom, now this is the Solomon that says, in all you're getting, get wisdom. Remember in the Proverbs? In all you're getting, get wisdom. But realize that this is not the end game. Gaining wisdom doesn't make you like God because you still have sin. So even in my wisdom, I realize I'm not fulfilled knowing all of these questions of life like I do, and I'm searching in life under the sun to try to find answers, and being wise in and of itself still leaves me in sin and separated from my God. This is powerful. I mean, he's really coming down to stepping back from himself and saying, I've got a real, real problem here. Now watch how it starts to wind down. Chapter 9, it gets pretty bleak. As Solomon starts to draw conclusions about life for those who have missed the fulfillment of knowing God and living in hope. Look at verse 3. Even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom and he shows everyone that he's a fool. I don't think that's the verse I wanted. Hold on a second. I know 7 through 10, is it? I'm in chapter 10, that's why, guys. Chapter 9, verse 3. There's an evil in all that's done under the sun that one thing happens to all. Truly, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Verse 7. So, here it is. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife, uh, with your wife under the sun all the days of vanity, for that is your portion in life, and in the labor which you perform under the sun. This is getting a little bit, if you will, suicidal. Just, just go eat, drink, and be merry, and I hope you have a happy wife and a happy life. That's your portion. That's your portion. Now, we could enjoy all those things, but we're not talking about just enjoyment now, are we? We're talking about eternal joy that he's seeking. He still has a restless heart, and it comes out especially in chapters 9 and 10, and it brings out more of these great enigmas of life which just seem unfair. The, the, the poor man becomes powerful and takes what the rich man has, and the rich man oppresses the poor man, and just there's so many things that just seem so unfair. And he comes down in chapters 11 and 12 and begins to conclude. Now, you may have thought that the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes was in the last two verses of chapter 12. It actually begins in chapter 11. He starts talking about letting go of the material, learning how to be more like God. He says, cast your bread upon the waters, be a giver, and you'll get something back. He says, you're going to reap what you sow. He says, you're going to make your bed, and you're going to lie in it. These are just truths. So he comes down to verse 9, and he says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but... And I think this is the most important word right here to transition us to the conclusion, but... Know this, but know this. Do all those things. These things are all good things. Do them. 
Be prosperous. Be productive. Plant and reap and marry and, and enjoy all these things. But know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart, put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity, because you'll stand before your Creator. So he says in verse 1 of chapter 12, Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the days draw near, the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. And in the next few verses, he commences to explain that your body will fall apart. Your teeth will chatter, your eyes will lose sight, you won't be able to hear the birds singing anymore, and all kinds of other fun things are going to happen. He says, so while you're young, young man, obey your Creator lest you go searching for God in all of these things, and you don't find Him, and you come down to the end of your life, and the days have been evil, and you say, I have no pleasure in them. Walk through these things in the presence of God, with God, hand in hand, and the meaning of life will be seen walking in the presence of God, that He is your giver. They're not in the gifts. The joys of, of eternity are not in the gifts. They're in the giver. And so as long as our eyes... Ladies and gentlemen, are focused under the sun. Long as you got your visor on and you're not looking up to God and you're just looking all around and you're searching for all these things, he says, you're, you're going to miss the great conclusion of the matter that only he is able to give you what you're searching for. So he comes down in verse 12 at the end of the book and says, And further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making many books, there's no end. Oh, you can go to Barnes and Noble and read, 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 still, can't you? And much study is wearisome to the flesh. Go ahead and try and figure out. Uh, try and figure out how it is that life came about. Study that through science and see if science explains how the first living organism came about. You won't find your answer there. It doesn't, it doesn't seek to resolve that question just tells us how things are, and we guess how things have been, and we guess and predict what will be through science, but he says, you'll study till you're blue in the face. So let me tell you the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Everything that's been in your heart will be laid forth before the living God, and you want to be found in His presence. You want to be found in a good relationship with God. You want Him to, to know who you are. And so Jesus, when He came and began to teach about relationship with God, He said, what's it profit a man if he seeks, if he gains the whole world? And Solomon essentially did and loses his own soul. But then He turns in Matthew 11, chapters 28 through 30, and he said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and you'll find rest for your souls. All you restless souls out there that, are, that, 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 that won't listen to Solomon and the book of Ecclesiastes and are just going to go search for yourself, 
I want to give you a warning and a promise. You don't know if you're going to live to the days when you can't hear the birds sing. So he says, remember now your creator, period. But especially those of you in your youth, your ambitious youth, your invincible youth, remember now. But the promise is, Jesus said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Come learn from me, he said, and you'll find rest for your souls. Your restless pursuit will be concluded in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is where God's love is emphatically stamped on humanity. That gospel message is what it is that He set eternity in our hearts and said you'll be fulfilled in me that if we ignore, we'll be searching all our life and never find. But today, now you know. I've told you the end because Solomon's revealed it. Jesus has confirmed it. And God's Word has spoken it to us. Oh, how many deep things we talk about in church. But we have the answers to some of these life's deepest questions. And if you are someone who is searching and you can't find, you need to come to Jesus Christ. Let Him take away your sins, however good you think you might be. Let Him take away your sins, wash you in His blood, be baptized into His death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, and become a Christian today. Then you will begin to understand what it is to have your soul fulfilled. Let's stand and sing this song together.